Hey, good evening, First Baptist family. It's good to be back with you. Um, thanks for last week uh, for giving me the opportunity to go on vacation. I, I know you may be wondering why I'm thanking you for that. Uh, there are some churches, I'm told, I've never been pastor of one, but churches that make their ministers feel like they're derelict in their duties if they ever take a Sunday off or a Wednesday off. Uh, you ought to know how important it is for everybody, but especially ministers, to get away for a while, to step away from that pastoral burden and, and just get some time away, especially with our families. And last week we went to Galveston. I know Galveston gets a bad rap because it's, you know, the beach there is not uh, anything beautiful. Uh, the water's murky and muddy. If you've ever been to beaches in Florida or Orange Beach in Alabama or even South Padre down in South Texas, you know that Galveston is not a pretty beach, but uh, it's an hour and a half away. You drive an hour and a half and you're in another world, uh, that salt air, the, the sound of the waves. For me personally, that that just takes away the stress. That That fills me with a sense of I've gotten away. We ate some good fresh seafood, some really good desserts, uh, and we spent some time away from things, played some games together, and watched some movies. So it was a good time for our family, and I thank you for allowing me to do that. It's good to be back, though, and I cannot wait until this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, when we do worship in person for the first time since uh, July, since early July. And I'm looking forward to seeing many of you there. And those of you who can't be there, thankful that we're able to be together uh, virtually. We're looking forward to if numbers continue to go down uh, in terms of active cases and hospitalizations in a month or two, maybe bringing back some of our other programs like, uh, like life groups and like midweek Bible studies like this one, uh, meeting on Wednesday night in person. We haven't set a specific schedule for that yet, but uh, we're hoping we can announce that pretty soon. So keep keep us in your prayers for wisdom and keep our community in your prayers that good things will continue to happen, uh, especially our leaders. Pray for them for wisdom to know what to do in this unprecedented time. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We Two weeks ago, we did the first half of chapter 6. Today, we'll do verses 12 through 20. Uh, when I was getting out of seminary back in the mid-90s and looking for my first job in pastoral ministry as a senior pastor, uh, there were several little churches that were interested in me and that I looked into, that I preached for and prayed about. And one of them was in the town of Cuero, Texas, which... Uh, I grew up in Yoakum. Cuero and Yoakum are in the same county and, and just a few miles apart. Uh, we were arch rivals in football growing up, although that's that's not really accurate. To be an arch rival, you, the, the rivalry needs to be pretty even. And the truth is, growing up, we beat Cuero maybe one out of 10 years. Uh, in fact, my senior year, when I was on the varsity, they beat us 48 to 20 and went on in one state. So, it was interesting when we went down to interview with this little church, uh, Carrie said to me, could you be a pastor in Cuero uh, where the where your arch rival plays football? And if you're, if you're not a football fan, you need to understand, in those little towns especially, the community life revolves around the local football team. So to pastor in that community, you would need to show up at the games. You would need to root on the team. And I, I had to seriously ask myself, God, if you call me to this little church in Cuero, Texas, 
are you going to give me the strength, the ability to root for this team that I've grown up despising? And, uh, it was a real something I had to wrestle with. In the end, we didn't end up going there. It had nothing to do with high school football. Just didn't feel like God was calling us to that particular church. But it makes you. It, it makes me think about what we're talking about today in First Corinthians six. The the Corinthian Christians were living in an environment where most of the people celebrated a lifestyle that they knew they had to reject. And the lifestyle I'm talking about is the sexually liberated, anything goes sexual sexuality. I told you at the outset of this study, and you've probably heard from other preachers too, that Corinth, uh, especially in the, in the Greek and Roman world, was known for its sexual liberation. It was sort of like the Las Vegas of its day. Whatever happened there stayed there. Uh, it was a seaport city. It was, it was uh, home to a, a temple to Aphrodite. Uh, if you don't know what Aphrodite was the goddess of, you can look it up. And so if you were a Corinthian Christian, you had, you had come out of that lifestyle. In fact, last time we, we met, last time we talked, uh, we looked at how some of the Corinthian Christians were adulterers. Some of the Corinthian Christians were homosexuals. Some of the Corinthian Christians were fornicators. They were people who followed the sexual mores of their community. And then Paul said in verses 9 through 11, such were some of you, but you've been washed, but you've been sanctified, but you've been justified. In other words, that's not who you are anymore. We talked last week about how countercultural that is to look at someone and say, you used to do these things, but that's not who you are anymore. And so they had to figure out how do we live in a community where the people around us celebrate a lifestyle that we know that we have to reject? How do we love them? without endorsing their values? How do we treat them kindly? How do we treat them as brothers and sisters, as people Christ loves, without endorsing what they believe in? How do we disagree with them graciously? And, and some might even say, why even try? I mean, what difference does it really make? Why not just do what the culture says when it comes to sexuality and just trust that God's going to forgive in the end? So how do we rule all that together? We live in a culture today that in many ways is similar to Corinth, where there's an anything goes sexual, sexual more, uh, mentality that you know, if it feels good, do it. And anyone who gets in the way of your sexual fulfillment is oppressing you. So what does the Bible say about this? Verses 12 through 20 goes like this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. By the way, if you're reading along with me, and I hope you are, uh, if you're not, pause this and get out your Bible, get out your Bible app on your phone. But if you're reading along with me, uh, you're probably noticing that when it says all things are lawful for me, it's in quotation marks. Paul is quoting. He's not saying all things are lawful. He's quoting someone else. I'll get into why in just a moment. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So right from the outset, you notice that Paul is very frank when it comes to the subject of sexuality. And I would say the entire Bible is that way. This idea that we don't talk about this subject, that when we talk about it, we do it in coded language, that doesn't come from Scripture. That comes more from Victorian ideas of morality that started in the 1800s. Um, so the Bible is much more frank about sexuality than the contemporary American church tends to be, and I would say is much more honest about sexuality than contemporary culture uh, tends to be. But notice there, there are two things Two, things that, two mistakes that we tend to make as contemporary Christians when it comes to sexuality, two very opposite mistakes that Paul doesn't make here when he's talking about this subject 2,000 years ago. On the one hand, we tend uh, as religious people to treat sexual sin as being some special category, and people who have sinned sexually uh, are stained in some way. Uh, that is, that, that's, that's our history. I mean, look at the book, uh, the, the Scarlet Letter, and you'll see that's our reputation. And so people in our culture today who know they've, they've done things with their bodies that they shouldn't, and they feel that sense of shame that's an inevitable, inevitable part of that sin, well, a lot of them, the last place they want to go is a church because they're just going, going to assume we're going to treat them as dirty. That's not the way Jesus dealt with people like that, but it has been the way that religious people and, and specifically Christians have throughout history. Paul doesn't make that mistake. On the other hand, we make an opposite mistake these days when we say, you know, we need to recognize the times we're in. We want to be on the right side of history. So let's sort of conform our teaching to cultural, cultural expectations. Of course, the truth is Jesus is the king of history. So whatever side Jesus is on is the right side of history, not the way culture is going. Uh, Paul does not compromise biblical teaching on sexuality. But the things that the the prophets of old said, the things that Jesus said in the Gospels, Paul continues to affirm. So, having gotten that out of the way, what do we see in this passage? Uh, rather than going verse by verse through it, what I want to do is I want to talk about three things. Three things we see in this passage when it comes to the subject of uh, human sexuality. Number one, we see how the, the lies of this world uh, in regard to sexuality are often just... Comp, uh, counterfeit versions of biblical truth. Let me explain what I mean. Paul starts, like I said earlier, by quoting. Now, who's he quoting when he says, all things are lawful for me? When he says, the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Who's he quoting? I think he's quoting things, arguments that he knew the Corinthians were using. The Corinthian Christians uh, we're, we're hearing this message, you know, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. In other words, if you've got an urge, if you've got a, an appetite, then that was placed in you so you could fulfill it. Does that sound like our culture today? Absolutely. Uh, when he says, all things are lawful for me, he was quoting an argument that the Corinthians probably made when they said, hey, we, we believe in a God of grace. So 
There's really no way I can ever be condemned by this God. Once I'm his child, he's never going to reject me. So I can do anything I want. Well, obviously, that's a perversion of the gospel. That's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel does teach that God can forgive any sin, but it specifically does not teach that if you've been forgiven and justified by his grace, you can therefore do anything you want. In fact, Paul would say, if, you, if your mentality is, I'll go out and do whatever I want because God's going to forgive me anyway, then you've never really tasted grace. You've never really come home to the Savior. So we see in this that the world's logic has enough ring of the truth to it that it's going to sound convincing. It's going to sound right to our ears. Uh, perfect example. There's a, there are a lot of books out there today. Uh, I read an excerpt from one this week that essentially teach people, you know, God wants what's best for you. God wants your happiness. God wants your peace. God wants you to flourish. Therefore, get rid of all those things in your life that cause you sadness, that cause you grief, that cause you guilt, that cause you shame. And you read that and you go, yeah, absolutely. God wants me to be happy. But if that's the sum total of what you believe, you end up with decisions like, you know, this guy I'm married to, he doesn't make me happy, so I'm going to leave him. You know, this, this uh, responsibility I have uh, committed to the Lord to accomplish, you know, teaching this life group, overseeing this group of kids, uh, it's not really, I'm not feeling it these days. So, uh, but God wants me to flourish. God wants me to be happy. You see how you can turn a gospel truth, which is that God does want us to have joy, into a perversion, which is I should be selfish. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to be careful as God's people to know the word for ourselves. Listen, I'm glad you're watching this Bible study online. It says a lot for you that you're taking the time to do that. But if you're just getting the word from me on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, it's not enough. You need to know the word for yourself. You need to be able to recognize the difference between truth and the, the lies of this world. And the only way to do that is by being steeped in the word for yourself. Number two, in this passage, we see a guide to knowing what is permissible. When it comes to the subject of sexuality, there's always those questions. Okay, I know the Bible is very clear that sex is created for marriage between a man and a woman, period. Okay, but there's still lots of questions within that. I mean, I remember when I was a youth minister for the year and a half that I was a youth minister and kids would often ask the question, well, how far is too far when it comes to my physical relationship with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend? Is it okay for us to kiss? Is it okay for us to uh, do this, do that? How far is too far? And, you know, that's really the wrong question. The question, how much can I get away with is not the place to start. Instead, we look at the way that Paul starts this passage, and it gives us a guide to knowing what is permissible. When he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful in verse 12. Well, there's a question you should ask when it comes to sexuality, and when it comes to the, the thoughts you are having in regards to sexuality, and in, in regards to it, when it comes to the things you do, the decisions you make, the physical actions you take. Ask yourself, is this helpful? Is this beneficial? Does this make me a better person? Does this bring me closer to Christ? Does this help anyone else? So the question shouldn't be, how much can I get away with? How much pleasure can I indulge in? 
The question should be, what can I do to help others? What can I do to make myself a better person? Here's another question. He goes on and says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now you get into the realm of addiction. Ask yourself the question, okay, I, I indulge in these secret thoughts and I'm not hurting anybody, right? But am I mastered by those thoughts? Do I, am I to the point where I, I, have to, I have to have those thoughts? I have to indulge my uh, baser instincts. You know, addiction is a serious thing. And, and psych physiologists will tell you that, for instance, porn is not addictive in the same way that drugs and alcohol are because there's not a physical need or craving for it once you've had it. But I've talked to a lot of men who would tell you, okay, maybe I don't have a physical need, but emotionally I've become dependent on these magazines that I read, on these images I see on my computer, on these these things I look at on my smartphone. And as a Christian, you should ask yourself, is it right to have something else be in charge of your life like that? I mean, forget, leave, leave aside for a moment the idea that looking at another woman with lust is adultery in your heart, as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Even if you can ignore that, which you shouldn't, think about the fact that that has become your master. And when it comes to addiction, we're, we're notoriously uh, self-delusional and we always want to say, well, you know, I, I don't really need this. I can quit any time. And the response should be, well, then try it. Try living without that and see what happens. Uh, in order to know if something is permissible or not, ask yourself, is this in charge of me or am I in charge of it? And then the, the third thing is, can I, can I take Jesus with me in doing this? And this is the one that is pretty much the slam dunk answer. In, in verse 15, he says, shall I take the, the members of Christ, that is me, a part of Christ's body, and unite that body with the body of a prostitute? Man, talk about something that a contemporary preacher would probably never think to say in front of his church. Paul's very blunt about this. He says, listen, if you go visit a prostitute, don't you understand you're taking Jesus with you? If Jesus was there with you in the flesh, would you say, hey, hey, Jesus, meet uh, this woman, this woman, here's my Lord Jesus. Now we're about to go do this thing. No, you'd never do that. And, and the very image of it is preposterous. So when you're asking the question as a young person, a middle-aged person, an elderly person, is this thought pattern, is this action, is this relationship permissible before God? Ask yourself, if Jesus was here with you in the flesh, would you take him along with you and, and, and allow him or, or allow him to see you doing that? Well, Paul's point is he's with you whether you like it or not. And that ought to be a guide to what is permissible. And then the third thing, the third thing we see in this passage, and this is really the key to the passage, and that is the reasons why sexual purity is so important. The reasons why this matters. At the beginning I said, how do you live out a sexually pure ethic, a Christian ethic of sexuality in a culture where that is not celebrated, in fact, is often mocked. And then I said, or should you even try? Well, here's why you must live that way, why you must hold yourself, why we have to hold ourselves accountable to the Christian teachings, the, the biblical teachings on sexuality. Verse 14, because our bodies matter. Verse 14 says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So in the middle of a passage about sex, 
why is Paul all of a sudden talking about the resurrection? Well, a little background. In the Greek world, the idea was the body doesn't really matter because eventually the body's going to die and turn into worm food and your spirit is what matters. So just work on your soul. Don't worry about the body. In other words, you get close to the gods, you find the right philosophy, you can do anything with your body that you want to, which explains why Greek and Roman culture could be so sexually uh, uninhibited. Why, for instance, pedophilia, something that we, even people who are not remotely Christian, look down upon as one of the worst of sins. In Greek and Roman culture, it was seen as perfectly permissible. In fact, if you were a an uh, upper-class male, that was sort of a, a status symbol. Um, and, and the reason it could be that way is because they had such a disregard for the importance of the body. Essentially, what you did with your body didn't matter because your body was unimportant. Paul says, on the contrary, the body's so important, Jesus is going to raise up your physical body on the last day. The body matters. He goes on. Another reason why it's so important, because... In verse 15 through 17, when we're saved, our bodies belong to God. You know, when I baptize a new believer into the faith, when you got baptized, you were baptized physically. Your whole body went under the water. And part of that was you saying, the old me is dead, a new me is risen. It's sort of like a prefiguring of the resurrection. But it was also a way of saying, all of me belongs to him. I'm not my own anymore. I've been bought with a price. And, and this is why sex within marriage is such a holy thing. The very first uh, teaching about sexuality in the Bible is right there at the beginning of Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become what? Not one spirit, not one soul, but one flesh. Your body matters. Your body belongs to God because the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife prefigures the glory of resurrection, the glory of, of Christ and his people, the union of Christ and his people. Remember, what is Jesus? What, what metaphor does Jesus use when he talks about his return and the new earth? He talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. The return of Christ is going to be like a wedding feast. That imagery is intentional. Sexuality within marriage is a symbol of God's love for his people and the, the someday eternal union of God and his people. So when we pervert that, when we use it in a way that is not meant to be used, then we destroy that metaphor, that image completely. Also in verse 18, he says something that's a little hard to understand. He says that sexual sin harms our bodies in ways that other sins do not. Now let me be clear about this. He is not saying that people who sin sexually are a special category of sinner or that they they can't be forgiven or that God looks upon them differently from other sinners. We see that in the Gospels. How many different times did Jesus take someone who had sinned sexually uh, and raise them up and, and say, I accept this person uh, over this other highly religious, very uh, morally devout person. I accept this sexual sinner because of their repentance. I mean, think about the woman who anointed Jesus with oil. Think about the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Think about the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus consistently showed that sexual sin is like all other sins before God. All can be forgiven, and, and no matter what you've done in any realm of life, you, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
So what Paul is saying here is that sexual sin doesn't taint you spiritually in any different way than, than other sins do, but it bears a different physical and emotional penalty. It's not something God does to you. It's, it's just the reality uh, that, that sex is important, that when you've gone beyond God's boundaries, there are consequences you have to face that are different than the consequences that you face when you tell a lie or when you gossip about someone or when you lose your temper, uh, when you, when you uh, judge someone and you shouldn't. Sexual sin bears certain physical and emotional consequences, and we need to be aware of that. He's just warning us out of a sense of love. He's also saying your body is a temple. And that means that if you were to take that temple and offer it to anyone other than God, if you were to use that temple in a way that is not according to God's purposes, it's like for the ancient Israelites to bring an altar to Baal inside the temple of Jerusalem. It's like offering a sacrifice to a false god. Your body is a temple. Your body matters. What you do with it matters to God. And it, and it should matter to you. And then finally, his last argument of why sexuality is so important, he says, remember, you were bought with a price. If you had a wealthy neighbor and your wealthy neighbor said, hey, your, your anniversary is coming up. How about I loan you my, uh, my convertible Ferrari? I don't even know if Ferrari makes a convertible. I'm not really a car guy, but I'm going to loan you my convertible Ferrari so you can take your wife out and, and y'all can drive along the coast and, and act like rich people for a night. Boy, what a great gift that would be. Wouldn't you be really careful with that car? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you drive the speed? Well, okay, maybe I'm going a little far, but wouldn't you be careful not to get in an accident? Wouldn't you bring it back with the gas tank full, washed and waxed? Wouldn't you be so grateful you'd want to give it back to your neighbor, your friend, and say, I treated this car well. It was a, this is a wonderful gift you gave me. I treated it well. Well, when we take the bodies God has given us and we use them in ways God did not intend for them to be used, it's like we've taken that Ferrari and we've wrapped it around a telephone pole and we've driven it 180 miles an hour and thrown on the emergency brake just to watch it spin. And we've abused this incredible gift God gave us. And then we bring it back to him and say, well, you know, you're going to forgive me anyway, right? How disrespectful is that? Your body was bought with a price. What price are we talking about? A Ferrari cost tens of thousands of dollars, maybe hundreds of thousands. I haven't priced them recently. Your body costs even more. Your body costs the blood of Jesus Christ. John Piper uh, years ago said, you know, whenever you're tempted sexually, let's say you're a man and you see a woman wearing an outfit that is revealing, and later on, you're tempted to just sit and picture that in your mind and, and go over that in your head and enjoy that and use it for your own gratification. He said, what you should do at that point is start thinking about the cross. Just, just picture Jesus on the cross. Picture him dying for your sins. And, and think about the fact that one of the sins that he is suffering for on that cross is the thoughts you're indulging in right now. And suddenly that image that you have used as such a, a, a treat for your mind and your senses, dehumanizing that woman, treating her as an object, suddenly that's not so appealing anymore. Suddenly you're recognizing, oh, my body 
doesn't belong to me. And certainly her body doesn't belong to me. I'm disrespecting the Lord who bought me with a price. Suddenly your mind is at Calvary, and at Calvary, those kinds of easy sins don't seem so easy anymore because we know what they cost. I want to just close with this. I've told you before about a class I took when I was going through doctoral training. Uh, I started out at Southwestern in Fort Worth. I ended up graduating in New Orleans. But uh, when, we were at, when I was at Southwestern, I took a class taught by Dr. Al Faisal. And the main thing I remember from that class was something that had nothing to do with the actual subject of the class. It was a preaching class. But in the middle of it, he decided to tell us about midlife crisis. You know, most of the guys in that room, there were about a dozen of us. We were in our 30s. He knew that pretty soon we were going to hit 40. Uh, and he wanted to give us a warning. He was in his late 60s at the time. And so he told us, here's what's coming. Here's what to look for. Here's how to combat it. Here's how not to give into it. And I remember specifically, he said... He told us about a colleague of his, a fellow seminary professor, who had left his wife and family, had been fired from the seminary, of course, uh, to run off with this much younger woman. And he talked about running into that colleague and his new wife a few years later and saying, you know, when I saw him, I spent a few, of course, I went over and talked to him for a while, and I could just see how unhappy they were. You could see this woman, you know, this woman in her mid-20s married to a man 30 years older than her, and you could tell she didn't respect him. She treated him like a child. She regretted uh, being married to him. And he, on the other hand, felt like he couldn't possibly keep her happy. He was stressed. He was dominated. He was unhappy. And, and Dr. Faisal said, it, it just made me so sad to think he threw away everything, his wife, his relationship with his children, his ministry, his uh, his position in the seminary staff for this. See, that's, that's what the world doesn't tell you. The world says, if it feels good, do it. The world says, you have appetites and desires for a reason you should chase after them. Anybody who stands in the way of you fulfilling your sexual desires is not on your side. That's what the world says. What the world doesn't show you is the consequences of following that to its logical conclusion. On the other hand, and Dr. Faisal wouldn't have said this about himself, but you look at someone like Dr. Faisal, a man who now is in his mid-80s and has been married and has raised kids who love the Lord and who follow him faithfully. You know, the, the rewards of sexual faithfulness, whether it's a single person who chooses to be uh, celibate or a married person who chooses to be absolutely faithful. The rewards of that are something the world can't even compete with. Keep that in mind. God's commands are not meant to ruin our fun. God's commands are meant to bring us joy. Let me lead us in a quick prayer, and I look forward to seeing you someday. Heavenly Father, thank you for your commands, which are always for our good. Thank you for your grace so that whenever we fail, you constantly, consistently forgive. Help us, Lord, to live up to your standards, to your glory, and for our fulfillment. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Have a great week.